Hey there, and welcome to episode four of this labor of love, Silver Screeners, a podcast devoted to love for all things cinema, past, present, and future. I'm your host, Frank, coming at you from Massachusetts, and thank you, as always, for hitting that play button. Okay, so there are a few things planned for today's show that I'm especially looking forward to talking about. First up, my humble thoughts on the upcoming release, Cruella, starring Emma Stone in a live-action prequel to Disney's classic 101 Dalmatians. This is the latest in a string of live-action retellings of Disney characters we thought we knew, but apparently don't. Or at the very least, they retell the familiar stories from a different perspective. Angelina Jolie gave us a backstory film that focused on the villain Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty in the film called Maleficent, and I think there was a sequel too. And even as far back as 2012, Julia Roberts gave us her take on the evil queen from Snow White in Mera Mera. Most memorable for me personally, though, I have to admit, was the great Kate, Kate Blanchett, putting her own spin on the stepmother character in the live-action Cinderella in 2015. But here in Cruella, Oscar winner Emma Stone, she is an actress who has charm and charisma, and you can see that for yourself in movies like The Help and Birdman and La La Land and even The Favorite. I mean, some of her stuff, frankly, is not really to my taste and not very good. And you can see that for yourself, too, in Crazy Stupid Love, Movie 43, and the slowly burning mental torture that was the 2015 movie Aloha. But given a good role in a good script, she can deliver, which I guess can be said for most actors. But the thing is that I have to say, I am curious about Cruella and I will see it. And I'll tell you two reasons why. First, it's directed by Craig Gillespie, who helmed the dark comedy I, Tanya, the 2017 film that it was a pretty dark comedy that took a look at the whole Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan thing in the early 90s, January of 94, what led up to that event. So he directed that one. And he also directed the blood-drenched remake of the horror film Fright Night. So with a pedigree like that, and the fact that Cruella, believe it or not, is PG-13, I mean, how the hell can you not want to adjust what this vision is for this film? So it's very possible and very likely that this guy is going to take the early years of Cruella DeVille into some pretty wonky directions. So that's reason number one, the director. Reason number two for my curiosity, Glenn Close. I, I get it. If some people may be tired of all of the praise hurled her way in recent months, you know, she was just up for an Oscar. She got all of this press about how she's never won and she's long overdue and yada, yada, yada. And she proved her sense of humor at the Oscars when she did debut YouTube, that one, that little jaw-dropping gem. If you missed the Oscars, just go in and type Glenn Close Oscars debut. That's D-A. Uh, so yeah, the Glenn Close gravy train may be a bit much by now, but hear me out. <laughs> hear me out. Possible overexposure does not negate talent. It is just the publicity machine that shoves that talent in our faces. So please don't reenact the ending of her version of 101 Dalmatians and gift me a skunk in a box or anything like that. I love Glenn Close. So Glenn Close, she played Corella DeVille in the live action Disney remake in 1996. 
And then again in 2000, in the ingeniously titled 102 Dalmatians, which is not to be confused with the animated sequel to the animated original, the animated sequel called 101 Dalmatians 2. So you have 102 Dalmatians and you have 101 Dalmatians 2, which is canon, which is the sequel, a hooray for Hollywood. <laughs> when the financial viability of a franchise hits the fan, you know as well as I do, you get multiple storylines, you get retcons of previous sequels, you get redefined canon, but Glenn Close and Emma Stone together, they are two of the executive producers of Cruella. Glenn Close is not appearing on screen, Emma Stone, this is her show, but if Glenn Close has enough faith in this to be on board with it and to have invested in it, then I can be on board too, so... Cruella, coming to your local movie theater on May 28th in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It'll be released the day before on the 27th in China, Japan, and Mexico. But uh, France and Indonesia and Iceland and South Korea, they'll get it first on the 26th. And by the way, judging from the photos alone, I'm going to make a couple of bold predictions here and say that if Cruella does not get at least Oscar nominated for best costumes as well as best hair and makeup, then my hat will be consumed and my shame will be eternal. So now it's time to announce the winners of last episode's trivia question. So last time we talked about 1967's The Graduate, a modest so-called sex comedy that went on to become not only a box office smash, it actually became the third highest grossing film of all time at the time of its release, trailing just Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. Pretty impressive, no? So not only a box office bonanza that gave Anne Bancroft what is arguably the defining role of her career, it also launched the careers of Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross. They became overnight sensations and household names, similar to what would happen a few years later with Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw in Love Story, uh, years later with Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet with Titanic. But on Oscar night in early of 68, even though The Graduate did get Best Director for Mike Nichols, it did not go home with the gold for Best Picture. And so the question last time was, what did? And for answering correctly, that it was in the heat of the night that nabbed that prize, Best Picture, a shout out and congrats to Alicia, who's actually been in my Facebook group, Silver Screeners, for almost a year now. Alicia, thanks for playing. Hope to hear from you again. And a personalized meme from The Graduate is waiting for you in your email inbox. Um, interesting, Alicia also mentioned that she will be giving a viewing of The Graduate another go, so enjoy it and let me know what you think. Also answering correctly, my pals, Stu and Al from Stu and Al Pod, that's their podcast that they've been doing for about the same amount of time, about a year, uh, from over in England. So check out your personalized graduate meme as well, guys. And everyone check out their show, Stu and Al Pod, which releases a new episode every two weeks. Thank you to all three of you, Alicia, Stu, and Al. Thank you for taking part in this. And everyone else, here is this week's trivia question. Today, May 14th, is George Lucas's birthday. He of the, the titan of the Star Wars universe. So we'll be taking a closer look in this episode at his first major hit, which is 1973's coming-of-age tale, American Graffiti. Here's the question. Two years before American Graffiti, 1971, Lucas experienced a pretty substantial financial disappointment at the box office with the release of his directorial debut. 
It's a pretty esoteric sci-fi film based on his own student film that he made while a grad student at USC, the University of Southern California. So name this first film of Lucas. It has become sort of a cult classic over the decades. It wasn't really one for mass consumption when it came out. So send your answers via email at frankmandosa at yahoo.com. You can post or private message me on Twitter. The Twitter handle is filmbuff1974. Or you can just search my name, Frank Mendoza, and that is spelled with an A and an S. You can also join or post to my public Facebook film group. Same name as this show, Silver Screeners. And if you want to get in touch the Instagram way, that's Frank Mendoza1974. So feel free to reach out, get in touch. So George Lucas's first film, a sci-fi one, a less than auspicious directing debut, though I don't think that he's really hurting given all of his successes in the years since. Two Oscar nods, untold fortunes, a permanent place in the film industry's Hall of Fame. So yeah, he's probably good. Um, so American Graffiti. This is the one that put George Lucas on the Hollywood map. Like The Graduate, American Graffiti focuses on characters who are coming of age. These folks are fresh out of high school. It's the last night of their graduation summer, and the next day, the following morning, the group is splitting up to go their separate ways. It's a crossroads in life that a lot of us can relate to. You have the character Steve telling his girlfriend Laurie, who is a year younger, she's about to begin her own senior year of high school, and he suggests at the beginning of the film that they see other people while he's away. You have Laurie's brother, Kurt, who is getting cold feet about leaving home, and he announces his intentions of not leaving for college after all. You also have the local greaser, John Milner, played by former boxer Paul Lamatt, who doesn't seem to want to do anything but cruise around all night trying to pick up girls, and ends up via a prank with a 14-year-old, Carol. No, it's not the way it sounds. It's truly not. It's actually pretty sweet. They sort of developed this love-hate big brother, little sister dynamic that's actually pretty fun to watch. Um, it's, it's fun, actually, to watch the two of them exact their revenge. There's one sequence where they get their revenge upon a carload of teenagers who throw a water balloon that smashes right into Carol's face. It's, uh, it's a funny, and in a funny way, it's kind of a sweet bonding moment uh, when the two of them get out of the car and get their revenge. Um, Johnny B. Good is blaring in the background. So great sequence. Also in the cast, you have the unlucky in lust character, Terry, sort of a sort of a socially awkward and clumsy, but enthusiastic, optimistic, and eager to please kind of guy. They all call him Terry the Toad. Uh, there's a great scene where he is out on a date with another character named Debbie. And in an effort to impress her, he tries in his own bumbling way to buy some alcohol, some old hopper at the local liquor store. And he's pretty lousy at, shall we say, keeping a poker face. I won't spoil the payoff. I will say though that Terry the Toad is sort of a reflection of Lucas himself as a teenager. In fact, there's a great biography, pretty new, called George Lucas, A Life by Brian J. Jones. And Lucas's boyhood friend, John Plummer, is quoted as saying, quote, there's so much of George in Terry the Toad, it's unbelievable. The social ineptness in dealing with women. Lucas's own mother would add in the same book, 
Quote, George always wanted a blonde girlfriend, but he never did quite find her. So, as for the actors who played this motley assortment of characters, the majority of them went on, after American Graffiti, to become a virtual who's who of 1970s American TV sitcoms. Former child actor Ron Howard, Opie from The Andy Griffith Show, he would go on to star in the series Happy Days. Cindy Williams, his on-screen girlfriend here, she would go on to headline the Happy Days spinoff, Laverne and Shirley, with Penny Marshall. Ron Howard, of course, is now an Academy Award-winning director in his own right, with movies like Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, the live-action Jim Carrey version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, Cinderella Man, Hillbilly Elegy, and ironically, Solo, A Star Wars Story. So he actually, years later, would go on to add to the universe that George Lucas created. 14-year-old Carol played by Mackenzie Phillips, who would star in the sitcom One Day at a Time. She is, in real life, the daughter of John Phillips of Mamas and the Papas fame, songs like California Dreamin', Monday, Monday. In smaller roles, you have Suzanne Summers, who became a superstar a few years later. She played Chrissy on the slapstick comedy series Three's Company, which was the American adaptation of the British comedy Man About the House. And then there's Susan Richardson, who would play one of the eight feisty and plucky Bradford kids in Eight is Enough. Oh, by the way, interestingly enough, when she did the pilot for Eight is Enough, who do you think played her brother? Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself. So that means that two of George Lucas's actors from separate films, American Graffiti and Star Wars, they would, after both of those films, they would play siblings, two of the eight on the show Eight is Enough. Hamill, I should say, did leave the show for good after the pilot, and the role was recast when it went to series, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to American Graffiti. This film, it actually foreshadows Star Wars in a lot of subtle and obvious ways. For one, both films have characters who are pretty inexperienced in life, pretty callow, but earnest, you know? Both films have Harrison Ford as a brash cynical, conceited kind of scoundrel, though he's definitely a bit more slimy here in Graffiti. Uh, both films showcase, both visually and audibly, Lucas's fascination with mechanics, meaning loud engines, speeding, uh, quick cut editing of adrenaline pounding sequences with these visually intimidating machines, whether it's cars or spaceships, that take off like a bat out of hell. Both films lead up to a climactic pivotal turning point that involves, um, let's just say a race against time and I'll leave it at that. So how did American Graffiti come to be? George Lucas himself. Okay, so he was born on May 14th, 1944, which was actually Mother's Day that year. He is a fourth generation Northern Californian. He grew up in Modesto, which according to him, was at the time, typical West Coast, small town USA. His family was Methodist. His father owned the local stationery store in town. This gave little George the advantage of, of having access to all of the latest toys and gadgets and knickknacks that were on his father's shelves, on those store shelves. As a result, he developed his lifelong fascination with all things mechanical, train sets and different toys like that. In that same biography that I mentioned before, George Lucas, A Life, 
he says, quote, I was always interested in building things. So I had a little shed out back where I had a lot of tools and I would build chess sets and doll houses and cars, lots and lots of race cars that we would push around and run down hills. I loved make-believe, but it was the level of make-believe that used all of the technological toys I could come by, like model airplanes. School took a back seat, really, for him as he indulged in all of this. He grew his hair out. He combed it back and greased it. <laughs> uh, one last quote from that biography. He says, and I quote, my teenage years, they were completely devoted to cars. That was the most important thing in my life from about the ages of 14 to 20. All of this factors heavily into American graffiti. So there is a reason why I'm mentioning all of this. It all factors into American graffiti, especially with the Greaser character of John Milner, as I mentioned, played by a real-life ex-boxer by the name of John Lamatt. Uh, in the film, he is the rival of Bob Felfa, Harrison Ford's character. So at one point, Lucas became involved in real life as an adolescent with a gang called the Pharaohs, spelled with an F, F-A-R-O-S. They, they treated him as their mascot, their decoy. He was rather short, so he was sort of the, the cute little one who joined them in their eyes, the one they would condescend to. According to him, they would send him towards rival gangs, and he would sort of be the... Uh, he would sort of be the bait. Uh, you know, the rival gangs would see him, they'd begin picking a fight with him, and that's when the rest of the pharaohs would leap to his defense, he would get out of the way, the fists would fly, and all hell would break loose. This kind of thing, to an extent, to an extent, is woven throughout American graffiti with the storyline of the character Kurt, played by Richard Dreyfus. Uh, Kurt finds himself caught up with a gang called the pharaohs, only in the film, it is spelled P-H, not F. So, so act does imitate life sometimes. Lucas eventually had his own vehicle, and he used it to race and cruise the streets of Modesto with his friends. It worked to his advantage, I should mention, that the streets happened to be laid out in long grids. And again, that's so much at the core of this film as well, this, this sort of driving around in circles all night together with your friends, getting food at the local drive-in, which in the film, the drive-in is called Mel's Drive-In. Uh, you had waitresses on roller skates bringing the burgers and fries and shakes out to you in the packing lot, blasting rock and roll music from the radios, trying to pick up girls. I mean, these are all of the these are all of the common small town America images from the generation of the 50s and early 60s, at least at least how pop culture always depicts it in movies and TV uh, set in the 50s, you know, the musical Grease, TV shows like Happy Days. Lucas himself has said that this film is a personal reflection of his younger years, which sort of lends credence to what's called the auteur theory of film, which we'll talk about in a later episode. In fact, in American Graffiti, there's an amusing moment where the greaser, John Milner, he gets a speeding ticket. He just chucks it into the glove compartment with the rest. Well, Lucas, Lucas loved drag racing and accumulated so many speeding tickets of his, speeding tickets of his own, it reached the point where he had to bear the brunt of the indignity of having to wear a suit in order to make a court appearance. So, something else that he took a shine to, seeing films at the outhouse cinemas. Lots of international pictures, especially. Uh, he was drawn to the films of the French New Wave, Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Italian pictures too, like uh, Federico Fellini. I mean, this is, this is good stuff. 
these films. His father wanted him to take over the family business, the stationery store in town, but Lucas was most definitely not interested. He wanted to do his own thing. And if you think about it, that's not too unlike Uncle Owen in Star Wars, you know, stay on the farm, Luke. Um, shortly before high school graduation, though, there was an incident that changed his perspective uh, forever. He had made himself a racing belt, a racing belt for the driver's seat of his car, and he used a metal plate to, to bolt it to the floor, and he was wearing it when he actually got into an accident that was severe enough that it landed him in bed recuperating for four long months. And what saved him? The fact that the racing belt that he himself had installed, the racing belt failed. It snapped and he was thrown from his car before it smashed into and got wrapped around a tree. So ironically, the failure of something that he installed for safety is what ended up saving him. And I mentioned this incident because it did open his eyes to different possibilities in life. To cut to the chase, he went on to get his associate and arts degree. It was the fall of 1964 when he began at USC, University of Southern California. He began as a junior and majored in film studies, which at the time was one of the few official film degree programs in the US. He fell further in love with film. He actually met a fellow student, Willard Hike. H-U-Y-C-K, who would go on to co-write American Graffiti with him, as well as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's worth noting that studying film across town at UCLA was Francis Ford Coppola. After graduating from USC, Lucas took a few graduate level film courses. This is around the time that he made a sci-fi student film that he would then expand to become the sci-fi cult film. That's the answer to this week's trivia question. So Lucas won a scholarship that gave him six months of paid work at Warner Brothers in a department of his choosing. It was here that he observed 28-year-old Coppola directing a movie called Finian's Rainbow. A friendship was formed. A couple of years later, after the 1971 failure of his sci-fi film, Lucas was advised by Coppola, who was himself in the middle of pre-production for The Godfather. Coppola advised him to do a film about people, something relatable, something not quite as cold and scientific and quirky, to write something out of his own life. Enter American Graffiti. With the help of Willard Hike and Hike's wife, Gloria Katz, another co-writer of Temple of Doom, Lucas cranked out a story treatment. United Artists took an interest after most every other studio in town passed. It didn't help that graffiti was seen as merely the latest attempt to panda to younger audiences, a trend that films like The Graduate and Easy Rider, films like that had begun. The big star of American Graffiti though is the soundtrack and Lucas said so himself. The film plays classic 50s and early 60s era rock music practically nonstop. He said there was no American graffiti without the music. So I can only imagine obtaining the rights, obtaining the rights must have been a logistical and financial nightmare. He wanted some Elvis tunes, but the rights were too expensive. However, they were able to get their hands on the rights for music from the Beach Boys. Let's see, Chuck, uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, the Monotones, that's Domino, the Dell Vikings, people like that. 
So it all came together well and for only $90,000, which was the bulk of the film's budget. A big coup was the casting of real-life radio DJ Wolfman Jack, whose role in the film is acts as sort of a voice of reason and a voice of conscience to the troubled Kirk character, Richard Dreyfus. Lucas was over the moon that he got Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack's voice is heard throughout the film uh, over all of the different car radios in between songs. He finally makes his on-screen appearance towards the beginning of the final act of the film. Uh, he was apparently a little nervous to be on camera because in these pre-internet days, his, his real-life fans wouldn't have known what he looked like, and he kind of wanted to hang on to that mystique. But Lucas offered him 1% of his own share of the film's profits, so money talks. This tale of teenagers going through rites of passage in a small town USA, it would go on to earn five Oscar nominations, including one for Best Picture for producer Francis Ford Coppola, one for screenwriting, which was shared by George Lucas, Willard Hike, and Gloria Katz, one for editing for Lucas's then wife, Masha, one for supporting actress for Candy Clack, and one for Lucas himself for Best Director. So he was actually a two-time Oscar nominee that evening. The Picture and Director Awards both went instead, though, to the Robert Redford, Paul Newman crime caper, The Sting. One final note that I definitely wanted to be sure to include here, the film's tagline on the movie poster, where were you in 62? Which was a throwback, uh, an appeal to the nostalgia for a so-called more innocent time. It was, it was the last year before all the, you know, all hell broke loose, before the, before the series of assassinations John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, uh, all, you know, all of the assassinations, the riots. This was it was set before Vietnam, the gray cloud of the draft. It was the year before the precipice that was the JFK assassination would change things forever. So it's set in 62. By 1973, when the film came out, you know, moviegoers had already been through an ugly decade of all of these things spiraling out of control. And movies like Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, MASH, uh, The French Connection, these films were the in thing. And they were all reflecting this sort of negative cynicism. So American Graffiti came out in 1973 and appealed to a se the sense of hey, remember when, remember our youth, remember when times were simpler. So maybe that was part of the reason why the film became such a huge hit. I will end with these words from Lucas himself from another book, which I cannot recommend any more highly, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind. And I quote, it had become depressing to go to the movies, Lucas said. I decided it was time to make a movie where people felt better coming out of the theater than when they went in. I wanted to preserve what a certain generation of Americans thought being a teenager was really all about from about 1945 to 1962, end quote. So there it is. Love it, like it, tolerate it, or hate it. There is the impetus, according to Lucas at least, for the production of American graffiti. Happy birthday, George. 
So thank you for tuning in as always and for hitting that play button. Be sure to hit the subscribe. I hope that you liked this look back at a film that looked back. Don't forget to get in touch with your answers to the trivia question. With any requests you may have for topics for future shows, hey, I am open to any and all suggestions and requests. Share your thoughts on American graffiti or just simply say hello. I'm always happy to hear from people. So until next time, keep on screening and I will see you.